We, uh, we're in the middle of uh, going, almost literally in the middle of going through Ecclesiastes, which is a particularly uplifting book. Uh, I'm being sarcastic. Um, and uh, and we just, I just did death, uh, not literally, but I, I spoke on death about two weeks ago. And uh, today we're going to do something different uh, out of Ecclesiastes. So uh, what I want to do is just show you a quick clip from a movie. I actually showed this in the olden days at the project back in 2011. So if you're here, you've seen this on before. If you, if you weren't here, I think this is an amazingly accurate uh, view of humanity's um, uh, perspective on food. Okay? Uh, and it's from the movie Over the Edge. Over the Hedge. Over the Edge. I'm about to go over the edge. <laughs> Charter, which you signed, says the grass is supposed to be two inches, and according to my measuring stick, yours is 2.5. Did we just get the food and go? Really? Do they have it? Or not? Didn't you see it? It was in the box. They've always got food with them. We eat to live. These guys live to eat. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The human mouth is called a pie hole. The human being is called a couch potato. That is a device to summon food. That is one of the many voices of food. That is the portal for the passing of the food. That is one of the many food transportation vehicles. Humans bring the food, take the food, ship the food, they drive the food, they wear the food. That gets the food hot. That keeps the food cold. That, I'm not sure what that is. Ah, what do you know? Food! That is the altar where they worship. Food. That's what they eat when they've eaten too much food. That gets rid of the guilt so they can eat more food. Food! 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 So, you think they have enough? Well, they don't. For humans, enough is never enough. And what do they do with the stuff they don't eat? They put it in gleaming silver cans just for us. Is it right? Kind of, yeah, it is, right? Humans are always doing something with food, aren't we? I mean, the most obvious kind of stuff uh, that you might hear about food is are things like anorexia, bulimia. Uh, but all the way from that right through to ordinary uh, overeating, we, we live in the land of the long, wide smorgasbord, don't we? Um, and uh, one of the interesting things without going into it too much here is some of the ways that we handle food are some of the most legalistic things that you'll see around the place. And that's one of the major struggles for someone, uh, in my view, uh, struggling with anorexia is just the, the legalism that actually attends to that particular struggle. When you actually go to the Bible and you look at food, you actually realise that a whole bunch of dodgy things happen with, with food. All right? So you've got the first sin in the Bible has to do with food. All right? And the misuse of food. You know, Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat. And the next major kind of deal in terms of sin is Cain and Abel, where Cain kills Abel. What's that got to do with? Well, it's an offering, but what's the offering? Well, it's food. That's what it is. And then after the flood, Noah gets drunk and naked, two things that still go together, all right? <laughs> Outside his tent. Um, and, and things just go bad there. And then you actually find, I'm not going to go into the details. How many? Yeah, we've got some younger kids here, so I'm not going into the details, but there's a drunkenness and nakedness thing that goes on in Genesis 19 that is particularly festy, all right? And, um, and, you know, so there's a bit of drinking 
you know, what's happening with drinking is actually, you know, what, what, are, we, what are they doing with that? Well, it, it gets really messy. And then you've got Jacob and Esau. Esau sells his birthright for what? For food, all right? Um, and then Jacob deceives his father at a what? At a meal, right? Isn't it? It's like food again. Like food's just kind of popping up all over the place. You know, and then the Israelites, once God's brought them out of Egypt, um, they get hungry and they get twisted and bitter and they want to go back to Egypt to get what? Food, all right? And God says, I'm going to provide you food. So he does and he provides what? Manna, all right? And then what do they complain about next? Food, <laughs> manna. You, you get my point? There's a lot of stuff going on here that has to do with food, all right? They get in trouble with God for what they do with water, all right? And so today what we're actually going to do is we're going to look at the place that food has in Ecclesiastes, right? Now, when I preached a couple of weeks ago about uh, death, what we actually looked at was kind of a... I, I talked for a little bit about Carpe Diem, which is kind of dead poet society sort of stuff. As I seize the day, just smash it out, right? Given that you're not going to live very long, just get right into it. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, you've got five different passages that commentators call the Carpe Diem passages, all right? And the response to every single one of these passages is eat and drink, all right? Which is just, that's just interesting. It's interesting that that's what it all kind of comes down to. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at that. And what we're going to see today is that I think the writer of Ecclesiastes uses food as an anesthetic, Okay? So I'm just going to go through each of these passages with you um, just so that you can see what's going on here. Right? So there's going to be a little bit of reading, but hopefully you can hang in. So this is Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18, 24 and 26. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, I, I didn't mention this when I preached a couple of weeks ago on death, but I call them Coalette, which is a nickname, right? Now, most commentators think it's Solomon, but the guy who actually wrote Ecclesiastes used a nickname for himself. If you understand the meaning of the of the name Ecclesiastes it, it's actually Coalette all right um, so that just gives you a, a bit of a heads up it, it probably is Solomon okay that's that's kind of where we're going with it I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me it's talking about work here just says oh, you can work really hard all right you can work really really hard and then you have to leave it to someone else you see this around the place and what's his response? Well, his response is, in verse 24, there, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. All right? What's he saying? He's going, if you work really hard and gather stuff together... The vanity of it is that someone else is probably going to enjoy it, all right? And so this is like a grain nomads, right? I'm spending your inheritance. Has anyone seen that sticker on the back of a caravan or something? This is kind of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here. It's like, you don't want someone else to spend it. That would be vanity. That would be meaningless. So the best thing that you could possibly do is in the middle of your toil and your work, eat and drink. Like eat and drink. Just slow down, smell the roses, numb the reality that you won't have it for that much longer all right but even in doing that he's kind of saying even if you eat and drink your enjoyment of that is still dependent upon whether god actually uh, gives it to you all right carpe diem passage number two is in ecclesiastes three he is put god has put eternity into men's hearts yet so that he cannot find out what god has done from the beginning to the end 
All right? What is the writer actually saying here? What he's saying is he's saying this. You can't actually know what the grand plan of life is. You don't know where it's actually headed. So what do you do? Well, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink. (laughs) All right? It's like, well, you can't actually know where things are going in the future. So you may as well eat, drink and enjoy. It's like there's no point in anything in this world. Just get what you can out of life you know the bigger picture is inscrutable to human beings so what it means is they just reduce to lesser goals if you can't work out what the purpose is in this closed system you can't know what the grand scheme is just get the sensual pleasures of life just get the the food and the drink and there's a sense here that the writer's kind of resigned to the fact that that's the best that you could have And he's not saying that eating and drinking is the best. It's like given a closed system that you can't actually know where God's going to take things in the future, uh, well, you just eat and drink. You just get the best enjoyment that you possibly can out of the situation. Yet he says you can't even get that enjoyment unless God gives it to you. Do you see that at the end of the verse? And there's almost a sense like I want you to notice this. It's not a main point for me. A really interesting thing about this this, uh, coalette is he feels gypped. <laughs> just like some people get this enjoyment, but he's, you can see with the tenor of his book, he's going, I don't. But, it, but God might give it to you. Just eat and drink, and God might actually give it to you. Carpe diem number three. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Who's ever seen that? Yeah, c- come on, you have, right? It's like, how many people do you know who are really rich and they're really anxious and they don't sleep that well at night? That's an owner keeping their riches to their hurt, all right? And then there's, uh, I mean, he goes, I don't want to go massively into the detail, but if you read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, another kind of category he says is you could actually keep all of your riches and then just randomly lose them all and be hurt that way, kind of like Job in the Old Testament. So what does he say? If um, if, If you keep riches and it hurts you, what do you do about it? Well, what I've seen is good and fitting is to eat and drink, <laughs> all right? And find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So in the futility of wealth... The best thing that you could, with, you know, in the light of the futility of wealth, the best thing that you could do is to eat and drink. Dull the pain of the meaninglessness, all right? This is not boundless optimism, right? This is, this is resignation. It's like it could just get taken away. Who knows that? Who knows I've seen some people that are really rich and then all of a sudden it was gone, you know? I mean, we've seen that kind of stuff. And Coalette just says, listen, the best option for you, eat and drink and enjoy your work there's nothing else in a closed system yet he's again kind of saying well you can't even do this unless god lets you you can't even enjoy it unless he uh, lets you and so there's a sense in which he's saying here not everyone gets the pleasure sorry not everyone gets the privilege of anesthetizing pleasures do you see that it's kind of saying if you could eat and drink and it would be really good it would probably dull the reality about the fleeting nature of wealth and what it can do for you but not everyone gets to have that. 
Carpe diem number four. You doing okay? All right, this is number four. It says this, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And what does that mean? What it means is that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. All right? So he's going, I've looked out and there's a whole bunch of bad things that happen to good people and a whole bunch of good things that happen to bad people. The moral order is kind of upside down. It's not the way that it's meant to be. If you're in a closed system, you might as well get into what you have, right? That's, that's what he's saying. You know, one of the things that the uh, writer of Ecclesiastes says is he actually is kind of at some level, and I don't want to go too far with it, but at some level he's saying there's at least two things that anesthetize you to meaninglessness and the harsh realities of life. You know what they are? Death. <laughs> That's pretty effective, right? <laughs> and pleasure. All right? Is this kind of, that can actually dull the pain. Uh, I mean, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 2 uh, you know, such an uplifting verse. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than, li- than the living who are still alive. <laughs> so, you guys do that, don't you? It's like, yeah, we go to the local cemetery. What a blessed group of people here. All right? But that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying here, it's like, there's not much better. And you may not have noticed it, but at, at the start of these Carpe Diem passages in Ecclesiastes, the writer's kind of going, ah, look, I've stood back and I've had a bit of a look and this is what I think is probably the, the right way to go. But as we go further and further th- through these Carpe Diem passages, it gets more and more kind of assertive about the best way to do things. Um, and that's um, seen in uh, Ecclesiastes 9, where he's not just saying, hey, look, I stepped back and I said, look, and this looked pretty good. Now he's actually going, here's what you need to do. He's like kind of commanding you, this is what you need to do. In the context of the meaninglessness and the troubles of life, um, and particularly in Ecclesiastes 9, he's talking about death, how it's coming for you, all right? And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. So, And he, you know, if he was here today with this passage, he'd just be going, hey, listen, death's coming for all of you, so you might as well just eat and drink. All right, that's probably the best thing for you to do right now in a closed system. Here's what he says. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. You know, I don't know what the uh, origin of the saying, uh, eat, drink and be merry, but this is probably it, right? Just get into it, right? Now, who, who knows in a closed system that actually makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Like if there isn't a God, why wouldn't you do anything else? You might as well enjoy it. Like if you're just going to lose everything at the end, and you're going to die, you might as well just get into it. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Put on your best clothes. Uh, let not oil be lacking on your head. Some of you came this morning. It's just, that's, that's like hair wax. No, I'm kidding. It's not. It's not all right. But it might be. You could interpret it that way if you want. You probably won't get, you know, burned at the stake for your heresy. But uh, enjoy life. Uh, with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Don't you love that? He goes, right, here's what you need to do. Eat, drink, be merry, all right? Enjoy your wife all the days of your vain life. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, man, can you not just get through a sentence without getting negative on us? You know, he's just going, here's the best thing to do, but it's vain. It's just a complete waste of time. Um, Enjoy your life, sorry, I should have said paragraph instead of sentence. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil uh, under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or death 
to which you are going. He's feeling like really encouraged right now because that's it's church, right? We come to church for encouragement. Yeah. You know, what he's kind of doing here with that little uh, italicized bit that I've got up there in the bowl bit is like even in the midst of your fervent activity to enjoy yourself, right, the meaninglessness of life in a closed system kicks in and it pulls your pants down. <laughs> if I can say it that way. Do you get what I'm saying? It's just like, you know, it just does. It just kind of, you just get mugged by it. So let me give you a little uh, summary um, of, of where, we've, uh, where we're up to at this point in time. The five carpe diem summaries, right? It's like there's no point in, uh, in working hard and someone else enjoying it. May as well enjoy it while you work hard by eating and drinking. That's what he's saying, like kill that one off. You can't know the future of what is going to happen or what God's going to do. So what do you do about that? Well, if you can't know it and you want to know it and you can't see the grand scheme of things, just kill that off by eating and drinking, like dull that one by eating and drinking. And, he, and then he goes, you might get rich and not enjoy it. You also might get rich and have it suddenly taken away. So the best thing for you right now is just to kill off that possibility and that kind of anxiety in a sense, just to eat and drink, get into the sensual pleasures now. Uh, and then he goes, good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. So that, it's like there's no rhyme or reason to that in a closed system. Best that you just get in and eat and drink and just kind of squash that one down. And then in Ecclesiastes 9, where we just look, he kind of says this, this whole kind of death thing is coming at you and it's really ordinary so the best thing for you to do is just get in and eat and drink and just kind of kill that one off so what is the writer of ecclesiastes suggesting that food and drink are good for an anesthetic isn't it that's what i think he's doing he's just going it's an anesthetic and i want to ask you the question do humans ever use food as an anesthetic absolutely they do all right you know, don't we do that? It's like killing anxiety of seeing bad things happen and the fear they might happen to you by living in the present. You know, maybe I did it, right? My uh, father-in-law had a multiple heart bypass surgery at the Wesley Hospital in Brisbane, right? Brisbane. And uh, I, uh, I don't know, it was weird doing this, right? But I'd, after we went and visited him in intensive care, I went down and bought some chocolate caramel slice at the cafe. I, was, I don't even know what that is, all right? Just, is that it? Is that what I'm doing? I, I don't know. All right? So that's where we're going to go for the rest of the message today is how do we do it? Where do we do it? Just identifying that kind of stuff and then finishing with a little bit of a theology of food. Who's ever heard someone talk about drown your sorrows? Hear that? I mean, that, that is well, um, well said in our culture, isn't it? And isn't that using drink as an anesthetic? Now... I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about how people use drink as an anaesthetic, all right, and specifically alcohol. That's like, that'd be like T-ball today, right? Like it's not, someone's not even throwing the ball to you. Like it's just sitting there and you just got to hit the cover off it, right? That's really easy. I reckon that you can do that without any preparation. You look around and you just go, what are you doing that for? Ah, oh, okay. So, you, you know, I mean, it's a whole thing. Like if anyone, you know, drinks alcohol when they're sad, it's not a given that that's what's going on, but there's a good chance that there's something going on there in terms of using it as an anaesthetic. What I am going to focus on is food, okay? Some of you are going, oh, should have had something else on. So we're going to start with uh, Oprah Winfrey, all right? Now, I don't even know whether you can believe anything that's written in Women's Day, but I'm going to read it to you. 
This was back, on, uh, back in 2011, just before her, uh, her last show, I think. As the talk show Queen signs off, friends worry she's already regretting her decision and is becoming dangerously depressed. When Oprah Winfrey's legendary chat show comes to an end this week, it will be the finish of a 25-year journey that has captivated the world. But while her achievements over the last quarter of a century are the stuff of legend, those closest to Oprah say the ending is a sad one. Listen to this. And that Oprah is already showing frightening symptoms of being seriously depressed. The surest sign is, as always, the 57-year-old TV favourite's weight. Oprah is definitely at least six or seven kilos heavier than she was in March, reveals a close friend of Oprah. Speaking exclusively to Woman's Day, her designers are doing the best they can to hide it. But this is much more than her usual kilo or two fluctuation. Listen to this. She's gaining weight because she's been eating more and more sweets late at night in order to cheer herself up. See that? It's just like anaesthetic. Food as an anaesthetic. It's always been her coping mechanism for depression. The problem is that, she gain, that then she gains weight and that only makes the depression worse. When Oprah revealed her show would come to an end this year, she told her celebrity friends, including favourite guest, 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 guest. What is a guest? Do you guys know what a guest is? <laughs> we'll have someone here who's a guest next week. Uh, Jennifer Aniston, that she wanted to go out on top and move on to even bigger things. But with her final show just a few days away, that sense of optimism has evaporated and Oprah is spending her private hours wallowing in self-doubt and worry. Is it true? I don't know. Uh, have we seen that in people around us? Probably. What about this one from uh, uh, SBS uh, Insight? Mm. Lynette, I, I want to broaden this out a bit because you had a different problem. Uh, tell us about that and whether any of this sounds familiar to you, given the problem you had. Sure. Um, my problem was um, low self-esteem, which manifested itself in, for me, a lot of stress in my life. And I found, in order to deal with the stress, I found myself literally addicted to eating because when I ate, I felt better. Now, I, from listening to the world of Warcraft, where you improve yourself as a person and you feel better and you feel better, um, I can hear the self I'm not saying that there's any self-esteem issues, but I can hear that self-esteem being improved, improved. Um, and my feeling of low self-esteem led me to eat in, an order, in order to dampen down my stress, which made me feel better. Okay, and when you say overeating, how yes. much were you overeating? Oh, goodness. I could down a couple of bags of chips and a couple of chocolate bars in, in one go, or if I cooked a meal and it might have been spread over a few nights, if I was very upset, I could have easily eaten that whole meal in one go. I was never hungry. It was just in a way to help me to cope and to help me to feel better, and unfortunately it did. It, it did make me feel better in the short term, but then clearly afterwards, then you have to deal with all the guilt and all of those issues. As all right. So just that's exactly, I think, what the uh, rod of Ecclesiastes is talking about. She's using food, using food and as, an, as an anaesthetic. All right. Now, the really interesting thing about the rod of Ecclesiastes is he kind of encourages people to use food as an anaesthetic, but there's a tension, right? Because if you look at Ecclesiastes uh, uh, 6, verse 7, I think that is, uh, he says this, he says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, and note this, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You see that? And there's a sense in, in which these uh, couple of just quick stories that I've put out, it's like they're going to food to save them, but that s food saving them like that is creating a whole raft of other problems in their life. All right? 
Um, there's obviously problems with using food as, as an anaesthetic, all right? And so Coalette here is just kind of saying, listen, the search for contentment is never ending. But so is his frustration <laughs> about finding something that's actually satisfying within a closed uh, system. You see, Proverbs 16, 26 says, the labourer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. You see, the writer of uh, Ecclesiastes just wants you to know, look, the best thing he's got for you is to eat and drink, but that's, that's actually not going to satisfy you. Bread alone doesn't satisfy you. And I think this um, little proverb that he, uh, that he writes here, I don't think it's specifically talking about food. He's just talking about the desires that people have. Like you're just going to get on this treadmill and the thing's just going to spin up and spin up and spin up. It's just going to go faster and faster and faster. And you're just going to get really tired because what you're going after doesn't actually satisfy you. A major problem with using food the way the writer of Ecclesiastes encourages you to do it is that it turns food into a functional saviour. It's like when you're in trouble, you run to food to save you. And some of you might go, well, what's the problem with that? Well, there's obvious ramifications for doing that. But one of the major problems with that, the major problem is there actually is only one saviour. The scripture is actually really clear about it in, in uh, Isaiah 43 verse 11. It says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. So it makes sense. If you get into trouble and you start running to food or to drink, it's not going to work very well for you. And it's probably just going to lead to a whole bunch of other bondage in your life. And I would ask you this morning, what is your saviour when it's not Jesus? What do you run to? What is your painkiller of choice? See, part of the problem with running to something else to be a saviour, a large part of the problem is it just makes things worse. Has anyone noticed that? It's like short term, it's like it's a little bit better and then it just gets worse and you end up in a worse situation. That's what a dodgy saviour does, right? And part of my job today is to say to you that Jesus is the saviour, amen? And don't go to a different one because they're crap, right? They're really, really bad. Don't go to another saviour. So when you're feeling lousy, don't hit the fridge, all right? When you're feeling lousy, don't hit the bottle. When you're anxious, don't hit the bottle, all right? Let's not do, let's not turn something into a functional saviour. That's a really, really lousy saviour. What about this one? Don't go to the fridge when you're bored. Here's the thing, I'll tell you, every single parent in this room needs to teach their kids that boredom is an internal problem, not an environmental problem. True? How could you be bored in this world? and it be the world's fault. You with me? You can't, right? If you're bored, that's your fault. So get out and do something. Get out and do something about it. You know, and we're talking about all this stuff, all right? And I want to just make a couple of comments, and I could get myself in a world of hurt right here, right? But um, I'm used to that, and uh, you, can, you can come and you know, beat me up at the end, maybe. Figuratively speaking, please. Uh, not wanting to go to hospital today. Some of you have issues with food and you can eat whatever you want and not put on weight. Some of you don't have issues with food and you struggle with your weight. Is it? Some of you reaching for the tomatoes in your bag, you know. It's true, isn't it, right? 
I mean, one of the things that um, I, I joke all the time, and it's actually, what, I think what's funny about it is it's actually true, is, is like with, with my boys, it's like eating is entertainment, right? So you get in the house and say, what are you doing in the fridge? Well, I'm just bored. I don't know what to do, so we'll eat, all right? That's, just, that's what you do when you're male, all right? So this, this kind of stuff's just kind of going on. Maybe you're someone who just gets a bit bored and you're just kind of on your own and you're just, you know, there's a little bit of anxiety or something. So self-medicate with a little bit of food, all right? And, and it's not, it wouldn't be right for you to look around and just go, ah, see there, you know, they're not quite as slender as this person, so they've got a problem with food. That actually wouldn't be accurate to actually um, say that, okay? Uh, so what I actually want to do is I want to, I've got someone to give a five-minute testimony about that, okay? Is everyone, everyone good for that? So uh, where's Hitsky? Can you come down, mate? We'll get a get your shouting stick. I've just um, I just asked Wes to just uh, share for five minutes about um, just his own personal kind of working through the whole food deal. Anyway, all right, yeah, this um, come up with uh, doing redemption groups actually. Um, who is doing it this year? Oh, good, good. I think the social uh, interaction of that group is just as, port- is as important as any of the material. And this is one of the things that sort of came out that Sandy asked me to uh, share. Um, the whole thing with food is it's a, um, it's a very, uh, what can you say, it's a, it's, a, it's a necessary natural desire. So it's not one of these things you can sort of say, I'm going to divorce it from my life. You actually have to interact with the desires you have for it. Um, so what stood out with, to me was, and this probably got back to, spending um you know 10 years of my life working in the rehab world and watching uh drug addicts close up and living with them is that often uh it drugs and and everything train you on you get an impulse and you just do it you know you you got an impulse for pleasure and you immediately get something that's going to um to uh try and satisfy that and there is there's temporary a bit of temporary relief there that's why people do it but sort of watching this um, process go on with people, it's like just, uh, you know, a desire comes, I answer it. A desire comes, I answer it, you know, that sort of thing. So having that as, as a, um, you know, watching that up close and, and, and obviously seeing how it destroys people's lives um, was um, something I was really familiar with. But then I didn't uh, r- notice so much myself. Um, I could do exactly the same thing with uh, food because my metabolism can get rid of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so you've got food, you've got two lots there. You've got quantity and you've got frequency. So say compulsive snacking, desire hits you on the shoulder, whether it be inspired by boredom or something, you instantly go do something about it, you know. Or else you get a desire, I want more, I want more. I could do both of those and you wouldn't know. But here's the deal is when you start doing the redemption group things, it starts going... Well, God actually doesn't care too much about my, my metabolism. He's going through that and looking at my heart and seeing what my heart's doing. And I'm acting like just a typical heroin addict or even, especially when you get in the, the drug world, drugs and porn always go together. And it's the same with the sexual th- thing as well. But the thing is with the food thing is socially acceptable. As with, if you were to go out to coffee, out to coffee with people and you said, oh, I'm just going to look at some porn here on my iPad, you know, oh, that's not going to go over too well, is it? Or so I'm just going to, 
I'm just going to snort a couple of lines while you guys get your, uh, your cake. You know, it's not going to work. But if I sit there and I just start eating as much stuff that comes, you know, I just go up and get, get more, get more, get more. No one says a jolly thing. But those other things are... Un- but you've got to understand is if you can put them all... They're all level. They're all doing exactly the same thing. So the, the thing for me that stood out from the redemption thing is, you know, you're drilling into these things a bit and it's clear that internally I had the life of someone from Teen Challenge, yet I would distance myself from them. Oh, they're, they're addicts. Realising that your internal responses are identical, just that I'm getting away with it because you can't see it making any effect on me. So that's... Um, uh, and again, I would say too, is food a God-glorifying act? If you don't think it is, man, you've missed so... It, it, is, it is a gift from God to us, but... Again, we don't talk about these things anymore. It's the four cardinal virtues and food will never give glory to God unless it's under the cardinal virtue of temperance. It's got to be... That's where you can have something and say, no more. As with our, our days, we sort of think, I've got to do a total ban on chocolate because if I have one, I'll have to have 20. Temperance actually is harder to do than fasting because what it does is it says, I'll have one and that'll be it. As with, if you are at the point where I can't have any chocolate because there is a problem there. You need to actually eat chocolate so you can practice temperance and say no to yourself because that's far harder than just doing a blanket ban on things. So, um, Go on, give him a round of applause. I want to uh, take a few moments uh, following on from that because uh, it's, it's likely that there's some self-righteous dieters sitting here today, all right? So I'm just going to offend everyone, all right? And that's how we'll get balanced today. That's, that's kind of what I'm gunning for. So this is the person, you're sitting here today, all right? And you're looking at those who eat for comfort and you're self-righteous about the fact that you don't do that. You're the one who's disciplined. Yet I would ask those who diet... I don't care what it is. I don't care whether it's paleo or whether it's, I heard yesterday, Israeli army kind of diet. Uh, that was on 92.9. Strangely enough, they're talking about food most of the day yesterday. Um, I would ask you, why are you dieting? Why do you want to eat healthy? Is it driven by fear? Are you actually using dieting as an anesthetic for something? Is it an anesthetic for what other people are going to think of you? Is it an anesthetic for the fear of death? Because you want to live a long time? So you actually may be as ruled by food as the comfort eater. It's just that comfort eating in our culture may not be as socially acceptable. Do you diet so that others will think well of you? Do you diet so that your spouse will find you attractive? If you eat paleo, are you more righteous than those who don't? So this point, is anyone here actually thinking, so food's bad, right? <laughs> is anyone going that? It's going, okay, so we're just not eating. And basically this church will be finished in about a week. <laughs> All right? Now some of you might go, hey, hey, whoa, 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 right? Jesus is the bread of life, right? He's the living water. 
Uh, I heard once that Jesus at a wedding that ran out of booze that he made some more. Um, I also read once in the Gospels that Jesus actually got accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And also this thing in Revelation, like you read the end of the book and it looks like at the end of the book there's a big feed. Well, I want to suggest to you that uh, food is not the problem, it's the direction in which we eat that is the problem, all right? That doesn't mean that dad's got to go at the head of the table. I'm not talking about that, I'm, I'm talking about the direction of your heart. See, eating and drinking is a mirror on your heart. You can, uh, you know, where's referred to some of these? You can eat from proud independence. I can eat whatever I want. You can eat from desire. So, so I, I just couldn't help myself. I saw it and I couldn't help myself. I just had to go. Uh, you can actually eat from a desire to strengthen yourself outside of God's provision, right? I won't be able to get through this day without my coffee. Really? <laughs> Is anyone with me? And so here's the thing. Every time you say that, is that being said post prayer to God saying, God, I need your help today? Or is it like, I need to get a coffee because I'm really tired, I had a rough night's sleep and that's what's going to get me through today. You see, that can actually be a strengthening of yourself outside of God's provision. You see, eating and drinking actually reveals either your faith or your idolatry. And everyone's doing something with food and drink. There's actually no neutral zone. Is everyone cool with that? All of you are doing something with food and drink all the time. How do you understand food? And this is where I want to finish. What is your theology of food? All right? Functional. Now, if we look at functional, we look at the way you're, you're actually using it. What does God want your functional reality of food to be? All right. I don't have time to unpack this very much, but here's, here we go. If you want to hear some more of my argument, uh, biblical argument later on, happy to kind of throw that out to you. All right. I think what God's actually done with humanity when he created humanity, I think it's really clear in the scriptures that God created humanity dependent. Okay. So let's just start, for example, with sleep. I just think about it. God's made humanity to have to sleep for a third of their life, ideally. Okay? Vulnerable, vulnerable weak for eight hours a day, roughly. Some of you don't even get close to that. And others of you are taking the other people's share. All right? <laughs> but um, a third of your life is sleep. Well, just think about that. What does that teach you? Well, it teaches, teaches you that for, for eight hours, if everyone sleeps eight hours a day, on average over their life... Um, and I'm glad I, I, I built up a bit of a supply in my younger years. But, um, you know, it, what is that actually saying? It's actually saying that for eight hours a day, you've got to trust. Like you're in a really vulnerable, weak position and you get tired and you're finite. It reminds you that you're finite. It reminds you that you need to trust in God. I think God's actually created a whole bunch of physical realities that mirror and parallel the spiritual realities that are actually far more significant and i think food is one of those all right food is a regular reminder of our dependence upon god how can i say this well the bible's quite clear that god's the one who's responsible for feeding people if you go to jesus at the sermon on the mount in matthew 6 26 he says this he says look at the birds of the air they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them all right uh, psalm 104 27 all the animals look to you, God, to give them their food in due season. 
So God's seen as the one who's the provider, the provider of physical food. And what we're meant to do is we're meant to look through food to God himself, who is the bread of life. I mean, you can go and you can read in John chapter 6 about how Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, He is the greater food that we need and all other food actually points to him. And you can see this with the Israelites in Exodus. He was to be their saviour, not eating and drinking. Now, I want to just read a section from Deuteronomy 8 to you. Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3. So the Israelites have been uh, stuck in Egypt. God's brought them out. He's taken them through the Red Sea, taken them into the wilderness. And this is uh, uh, God's word uh, through Moses about that time in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 to 3. Listen to this. The whole commandment that I command you today... You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Listen to this. This is the important bit. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, listen, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you hear that? The purpose of letting people go hungry for God, the Israelites go hungry, is to remind them that they have a hunger that's far greater and far more significant for something that's far more sustaining. Do you hear that? That's what it is. And so what does he do? Well, he daily provides manna for the Israelites until they enter the promised land and then it stops. And if you go home, and I really encourage you, go home and read John 6. Right? John 6 is all about Jesus being the bread of life and these references to the manna in the Old Testament. All of this manna of God's provision for his people physically was all pointing to the fact one day someone was going to come who was the bread of life. The manna. So the way that you need to understand food is you need to understand food as um, something that you need to look through to see the ultimate provider of your needs you see the writer of ecclesiastes is saying it's a closed system go for the sensual pleasures now you know what the gospel does jesus coming and dying on the cross changes the pressures that we have see god breaks into our closed system doesn't he and he changes things so we don't need to fear death i mean i could go through all five of the uh, carpe diem passages and talk about how jesus coming on the cross changes all of those But it also changes the way that we see eating and drinking. Food is not bad. You know, 1, 1 Corinthians uh, 10.31 says this, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So how do you glorify God by the way that you drink orange juice? Well, you have to look through it. You always have to look through it. And you actually have to see that there's something greater on the other side. There's a deeper, greater hunger in you. And there's something greater on the other side of that sustenance than just the orange juice itself. And it's God himself. So I want to give you some practical suggestions. All right? So I've got five practical suggestions. You ready? Number one, stop and give thanks as often as you can before you eat. This is called grace. Say grace. Now, when I say as often as you can, like you don't need to get up on 
you know, the boom can karaoke stage at the pub, right, and say grace into the microphone. There might be situations where uh, you've um, you got the, uh, you know, you're eating food and maybe it just doesn't quite work and it's going to be really cheesy. I'm, I'm cool with that, right? You can pray on the inside. You know, it's kind of the whole dancing on the inside thing, right? You can pray on the inside if you want to pray on the inside. But I'll tell you, grace is a really good opportunity for you and if you've got a family to just pull everyone up and just say, hey, listen, uh, there is a provider that's greater than this enjoyment that we're going to have by whatever we're going to eat, all right? And if you've got kids, they probably hate most of the food that gets served up to them anyway. And so you've got a really good opportunity to teach your kids how to be thankful with something that they don't like that's actually good for them, which is going to be most of their life. True? Most of your life are good things that you don't like that happen to you, all right? And you need to teach your kids to receive with thankfulness something that's good that you don't like. True? I mean, it's just, it's not a hidden secret in the church, right? But here's the thing, just telling you, some of you are going to have stuff happen to you this week and God wants it to happen to you and you're not going to like it, but it's going to be really good for you. Okay? I'm not saying it's going to be fun. It's not going to be all happy. You know, you're not going to be dancing in the streets, but it'll be good for you. All right? And so it's good to teach kids how to be thankful, even when there's something that they don't like. And in the Sondergeld household, we've had boys say grace, and they would say it like this, and like, we're working on it, right? So this is not, this is not the end, but they go, God, thank you for this food, even though we don't like it. Amen. <laughs> Well, I'm going to take that one, all right? I'm just, I'm going with that one and we're going to keep working on it. But uh, anyway, so that's the first thing. Just say thank you to God. Bring him into it. Acknowledge it comes from his hands. All those uh, verses from the Sermon on the Mount and the Psalms that I read. Number two, study the Bible about fasting and then undertake a food fast, all right? If you haven't done it, uh, I, uh, I preached on it not that long ago, um, there's nothing better to, uh, to see yourself and your dependence upon food, the way you use it as, a, as an anaesthetic, than actually um, not eating. <laughs> what am I going to do now? You know, and actually doing uh, that Deuteronomy passage about uh, hungering and realising that your hunger for God is actually far greater. I've got some good books on fasting. If you want to read those, you can come and see me. Um, number three, uh, people are both simple and complex okay what what do i mean by that well what i mean by that is we can identify this morning the mechanism uh, that kind of operates where people use food as an anesthetic but the question as to why someone's using food as an anesthetic can be an incredibly complex one and that's in its context specific to each and every person okay so you can kind of i mean it's a bit like uh you know you look at if you know someone who's who drinks and is an alcoholic, right? You, in a sense, like they just over-drink all the time, right? You can look and you just go, well, you've got a problem with drinking. And you just go, well, that's not really helping, right? Everyone can see that. <laughs> that person's got a problem with drinking. Uh, the question is, what, what kind of, how is that operating as, a, as an anesthetic in them, all right? And it could be way different uh, for everyone, okay? I've, I hesitate to do this because I actually got tagged for talking about porn too much. And I'm not going to go into details, but I'm working with a guy at the moment um, who's um, struggling with that, um, with an addiction to porn, and it actually isn't about the pure hedonistic pleasure of it. All right? Now, you would automatically just go, he's just got a problem with pleasure. You just go, well, not really. What he's got a problem with is intimacy. He wants, he wants intimacy, and I'm not going to go into the details of all of that, but just to highlight, it's like, don't look at people and just go, yeah, I get that, I know why he's doing it. Well, just be careful, Okay? 
And just be careful and make sure you understand people properly because people are complex, even though there's things that are going on that look simple. So if you're someone that struggles with this, just get some help, can you? All right? And don't, you just, some people just sit there and just go, no, I think I'll just do this on my own. Just go, excellent. So what you've just done is committed yourself to kick against the hard wiring that you've been created with. So good luck with that. All right? No one was made to do stuff on their own. So if you go, oh, I'll just sort it out. I did this. I, we put out a video blog this week about this, right? I, I remember working with um, a lady at one point in time who had been really seriously sinned against by some people. And it wasn't an easy answer to what was going on. But, you know, all I was encouraging her to do is, I think you just should just talk to God about it. That's it. Like, just, just talk to him about it. <laughs> just tell him about it. Not even like, give me an answer to it. Help me to fix this. You know, quick fix this. I just talk with him about it. And you know what she said to me? She said this, almost these exact words. She said, I want to work it out on my own and then I'll talk to God. And I'm just going, well, good luck with that. All right? Because you didn't get created to do that. And so you're kind of kicking against the actual created order in the universe and that's just not going to work particularly well. Uh, number four, uh, glorify God in your eating and drinking by looking through it to Jesus, the bread of life. All right? It's probably not massively practical, but that's one of the key things. And the last thing is this. Enjoy your food. <laughs> like, enjoy it. Right? I want to uh, just read you a section. It might sound a little bit obtuse, but this is from uh, Deuteronomy 14. Because uh, I don't want you to go out of here thinking food's bad, right? Because God's putting a pretty big feast on for you. Okay? So it's the direction in which you eat that is the issue in terms of your heart. Listen to this from uh, Deuteronomy 14, uh, 22 to 26. Uh, God's talking about how you should tithe, like give portions of your food um, and your harvest and that sort of stuff. You shall, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field uh, year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he would choose to make his own dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you'll sh you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Listen to this. Whatever your appetite craves, but listen to this. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God. You see that? Just going, if you get really hungry and you want to eat some good food, eat good food and enjoy eating good food, but do it in God's presence, in thankfulness for him. And rejoice, you and your household, right? So don't go home today and your kids are going, what's for lunch? And you just go, it's just a cracker, man. We're getting a water cracker out, you get one, <laughs> all right? That is not what's actually going on here. So put God first. Bring God into your eating, into your food, and then party, Amen? And rejoice. Celebrate God's goodness in the food that you've got in front of you in His presence. Don't use it as a functional saviour. Your, is your eating and rejoicing accomplished coram Deo before the face of God or is it away from the face of God? Is it joyful rejoicing, nervous anesthesia or demanding God playing? What's your approach to food? I want to finish, this is a last slide today, with what I think is a, uh, a beautiful little proverb at the end of um, 
Proverbs in chapter 30, verse 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Listen to this. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? You hear that? So just be careful with what you do with food because food can actually lead to a denial of God. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's a good prayer, isn't it? So give me enough. Help me to enjoy what's there. Give me enough and let me just be satisfied with that in the context of you. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and, uh, and we're done. God, we, we actually have a really, pretty, really bad habit, actually, of taking really good things and just kind of messing with them and just wrecking them, really. We take something like food, which is so great and such a blessing, and just think about the community that, uh, that happens around food, that the rejoicing, as Deuteronomy talks about, that can happen as, as we eat and we drink together. And we can just turn it into a weird animal. It's just something completely different. And so God, I pray that you just help us to see today how we do that. Help us to see how we use food. God, and not be scared of it. And not get stingy about it. But just bring you into it. So God, I pray that you just forgive us for all those times where we've forsaken the only saviour for the saviour of food. And God, I would just ask that you would become part of our internal conversation that we have about food. God, I pray that you become part of, for those who have got families and kids, that you become part of our internal conversation about food, but also the external conversation with the family about what we do around food as well. God, so we would just value it. I pray that you give us the eyes to see through food through hunger to a greater hunger and a greater sustenance uh, in Jesus, the bread of life. Amen.